For the week of February 14th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On the show this week, we will break down some of the news in and about our state with writer Rich Smith from The Stranger. We will also talk with one of the principal figures from Eastside Indivisible, Dave Schwartz. And then we will have our weekly call to action. We now welcome writer Rich Smith, who writes about local politics, among other things, for the Seattle Weekly paper, The Stranger. So, Rich, let's start by talking about the piece that you wrote about Congressman Dave Reichert. And uh, by the way, the piece got a shout out in Daily Coast. So that was awesome. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So uh, Dave Reichert is the Republican congressman from Washington's 8th District, which covers a wide swath of the east side, as well as portions of Pierce and Chelan counties. And Chelan County in particular particular is where about 40% of residents rely on the ACA and Reichert in lockstep with the GOP uh, a couple weeks back voted to gut the ACA without a replacement. You talk to people in the district who would be affected by dismantling the ACA. What were some of the stories that you heard? Yeah, well, um, in the piece I talk about Michelle Straka, who's a resident of North Bend, uh, she had been diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis uh, and is, you know, living life with MS. And she was terrified. <laughs> you know, she's on the ACA mm-hmm. uh, and she'd be she and, and not covered by her husband's plan uh, at work. Um, and she's terrified that she's going to lose her coverage. Um, she's terrified that her husband's going to be tied down to his job so he wouldn't be able to take advantage of the great op you know entrepreneurial opportunities of the of the states uh because he has to secure health care um right. you know and then i've also heard since i published the story I've, I've received tons of emails um well tons is a strong word i should say three emails <laughs> three is a ton in washington but three okay. But like about you know about people worried about their you know their kids who are like twenty five and they're just getting out of grad school and they've got Crohn's disease and they're not yeah. sure whether or not they're gonna you know how long they're gonna have insurance whether or not they're gonna be able to afford to live yeah. if the Republicans gut um, the the health care. This is sort of some of the some of the stories that these constituents want to bring to their um, representatives and ask them. Well, yeah. And in fact, people trying to get access to their representatives right now is a real hot button issue. And it's something that I know that the Indivisible Movement is pushing for very strongly. And I will just add as a quick footnote to uh, to that story. The estimate is that there are well over 40,000 people who will be affected just in District 8 alone wow. with the appeal of the ACA. So it's a very real story. Uh, speaking of trying to get access to your representative, um, Dave Reichert was in the news recently complaining about the record number of calls that his office has received, but he framed the complaint in a very specific way. And you wrote about that. Tell us about it. Yeah, basically he hid behind vets and senior citizens um, and used them and their concerns as an excuse for not communicating directly with uh, his constituents in a... um, in an interview with King Five, directly following the, the Trump's executive order that instituted a ban on seven Muslim-majority countries, um, he, he said that basically he was getting so many calls from his constituents um, about the Muslim ban uh, that he couldn't do the real work. 
of uh, responding to people who uh, lost a Medicaid or Medicare check or respond to veterans that aren't getting their VA care. Um, and he says that uh, his job or his office's job was to um, respond to those people. And um, they weren't able to do it, quote, because a certain segment of our society believes that their voice is more important than the voices of the people who are crying out for those to help them. So, yeah, here Reichert is saying that he only wants to hear from certain kinds of constituents and, and not others. And then the problems they have, he, he determines what the problems they have and not, not his constituents. Well, he's been very resistant to uh, holding town hall meetings uh, in the district, which I guess, given how other GOP representatives are being received at their town halls, uh, Jason Chaffetz, probably most prominently, uh, <laughs> you can see why he might be nervous about it. Um he was first elected in 2004, uh, but he has never held a full-scale town hall, to the best of my knowledge. You reached out to his office about this. Did you get an answer as to why he doesn't? I only got an answer through uh, his constitu- or through his district director, Sue Foy, and I got that through conversations that in the, that that Straka. Um, had had with her. And Sufoy won't speak for him, but for her, she feels like town halls mm. are, uh, are just turned into screaming matches. But I haven't got a comment from him. I mean, I reached out to his office several times and looked for a direct comment from him, but I, I, I don't have one. Well, you also did a piece about other GOP state lawmakers who are also refusing to hold town halls. Um, who are they and what were some of the reasons that they gave? That's right. All of the state of Washington's Republican um, Congress people. And there are three of them, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Three. Dan Newhouse, Kathy McMorris Rogers um, on the on the on the way side of the, of the state um, and, and Jamie Herrera Butler. None of them have scheduled town halls for the upcoming um, in their districts for the upcoming congressional recesses that begin on uh, February 20th. I guess that's that's next next week. Right. Yeah, and uh, Newhouse um, w- was quoted saying that, oh, you know, we're not going to do a townhouse because or a town hall because it's the first hundred days of a presidential administration and they're packed, and so they're that they're packed with tons of legislative deals and and we can, and and that's why. <laughs> so they just claiming to be too busy, basically. Yes. Yeah, I'm yeah. so busy here. You know, I couldn't possibly plan uh, to stand in front of my constituents and hear their concerns. Kathy yeah. Morris Rogers and, and, and Butler um, both have nothing scheduled and wouldn't tell me why uh, they wouldn't. Um, they wouldn't hold the town hall. And nobody even returned my calls, uh, nor, nor my emails. But other Republicans across the nation uh, give reasons that shed some light uh, on why they wouldn't want to have town halls. A general theme that kind of emerges when you look at a lot of their uh, reasons is that they don't want, as Reichert said, to create a YouTube moment. They don't want um, to be the subject of scorn and ridicule (laughs) from their constituents. And they characterize their constituents who have real concerns about whether or not their children are going to be alive come this time next year or, you know, in in a couple of years, whether or not they're going to be alive in a couple of years. 
because they are the, uh, as hordes, uh, you know, uh, screaming uh, <laughs> radicals who are going to, you know, uh, create a giant, you know, uh, riot and burn down the, the house. You know, this is how they're being characterized, their own right. constituents, yeah. Right, and this is in, in particular, I think, how the Republicans would like the Indivisible Movement to be seen broadly. But it's getting a little, I think, perilous either way for Republicans who are refusing to uh, engage directly with their constituents. Uh, Mitch McConnell, just the other night, uh, was met on the tarmac uh, and tried to avoid his constituents there in Kentucky and then went home to find out uh, to find a number of constituents at his home. Uh, uh, protesting him there so it's it's looking like one way or another uh people are going to get their youtube moment yes so. and just on the like uh, are these screaming hordes i know there's been a couple youtube videos that you know suggest the jason chaffetz video for instance in utah where mm-hmm. constituents were sort of chanting uh in unison and, and and telling him to do his job the stuff that i've seen like i went to the first um Hashtag um, resist Trump Tuesdays in Seattle down at the federal building and the people in large part who are going into their um, representatives offices who are holding like 10 to 15 minute little rallies outside of federal buildings. These are largely you know, former teachers sure. uh, and you know, people who worked at nonprofits, you know, government related nonprofits for their entire lives, you know, intellectual boomers, you know, for the most most part in their late late 50s and 60s you know and even early 70s who you know here one of the I will never forget <laughs> this woman was speaking about Rex Tillerson uh, as a as a Trump's nominee for Secretary of State. And this was the kind of rhetoric she was using. This is the horrible horde rhetoric she was using. She, she said, now, the Secretary of State is supposed to have a multilateral consideration of other countries, but in Rex Tillerson's case, it appears that he has a completely bilateral consideration of other countries, which is to say, a close relationship with Russia. <laughs> these, these are not scary people. These are like concerned, thoughtful people who are getting engaged with government for the first time and you know they they can't be they can't be characterized as hordes it's 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 inaccurate right and in fact the kind of person that you characterize there is actually very indicative of the kinds of people that i've met who have gotten off the sidelines and into the indivisible movement so rich smith thank you so much for joining us man All right. Thank you. Rich Smith is a writer for Seattle's weekly paper, The Stranger. Our guest on the show this week is David Schwartz. He is one of the principals of the Indivisible Eastside Group, as well as being one of the admins of their Facebook site. I asked him to start out by talking about his professional background as well as his history with activism. Well, my background, educational background, is that I have a Ph.D. in engineering psychology from Rice University from too many years ago. (laughs) And I retired in 2015 from IBM 
where I was a senior technical staff member having focused on software design for most of my career. Okay. Also, you know, a couple of stints here and there, a small research company and another one where I designed uh, uh, what was at the time state-of-the-art ultrasound imaging system for Siemens Medical Systems. Uh, but most of my career beyond that was with IBM. And, uh, and I've been involved in what I would call progressive causes uh, for most of my adult life. Uh, certainly the intensity has varied over the years, uh, gaining and, and receding over time at different points in time. Um, I was a uh, group chair for the Sierra Club in Santa Barbara, California. I've been involved in Move On for a number of years. Um, and uh, have always been very focused on progressive, excuse me, progressive issues and um, and current affairs and and what we can do to improve our the future of our our, our country and our and our residents. Uh, because you know, I'm very sensitive to what kind of world we're going to leave our kids and uh, by extension our grandkids. And um, clearly, there's great reasons to be very concerned about the condition of our world given the current administration. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the election of Donald Trump was the catalyzing moment for a lot of people who are now currently involved in the Indivisible movement. Um, You know, I will just say for people who are listening who cannot see your Skype avatar, um, you're either very well preserved or you're way too young to be retired. But in any event, uh, it sounds like you're putting your engineering background to good use because in addition to your work with the Indivisible Eastside Facebook, group, you are also at work on a website that is designed to bring people into the movement who are maybe a little averse to social media. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So just for the record, uh, my Skype image or or avatar, I'm looking at now in response to your comments, might not be the most current. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you want a more current picture, probably doesn't look too worse for wear. Check out my Facebook uh, picture. That might be a better, more representative uh, image of my my current state. All right, Uh, cool. We'll include that. So I wouldn't describe us as a Facebook group. I describe us as a progressive organization that has a Facebook presence. And uh, with this website, we'll have a more traditional web presence as well as Twitter presence. And, you know, time will tell how else we uh, make ourselves accessible to the general population. We were interested in developing the website uh, because we recognized that a sizable portion of our membership is not entirely comfortable with social media. Uh, the old adage, perhaps not so old, but uh, uh, a relevant one in any case, is that if you don't pay for the product, you are the product. Mm, right. Yeah. And that keeps a lot of people away from social media. And we want to knock down as many obstacles as we can that might prevent someone from engaging with us and, and working with us to improve our our situation, our, our national um, uh, status, if you will. Right. Uh, on both, you know, domestic and foreign affairs issues. So it's yet another component of the Indivisible East Side movement. Absolutely. And, you know, initially it's going to be mostly one way, more traditional web, web 1.0, if you will. So this is a place where people can go to gain understanding of what we're about. Uh, there is some discussion of the principles of our group and, and what we adhere to to ensure that we have a meaningful and respectful dialogue when we do dialogue um, or when we post information. 
Uh, it's going to be where people go on a daily basis to uh, identify what actions are relevant to be taken that day. So Good. they'll be updated on a regular basis with uh, these action ideas, as well as provide people with the resources they need to be uh, effective, whether it's you know as simple as the phone numbers for their members of Congress or scripts they could use when calling into those members, or a variety of other kinds of resources that would make them more effective at, uh, at what we're all trying to do together. Okay, well, so give us a plug. What's the URL going to be? The URL is simply indivisibleeastside.com. Perfect. All right. So now the Facebook group, that is basically where I found you because that is what is listed on the indivisibleguide.com website. Uh, that group right there has nearly 800 people and it's from cities all over the east side. You're kind of an amalgamation of a number of different congressional districts. Um, what's your role in it? Were you the founder of this group? So um, as of today, in fact, we are at 830 and I would project that within the next two weeks, we will hit a 1,000. That, that's, that's great, just, man. Good. That's my guess. So very excited about that, uh, Stefan. Um, I am among a small number of people trying to provide leadership to the group. Uh, I did not originate the group, however. The group was actually originated by a group of seven friends who started a Facebook group just to share ideas and to really ha- have a conversation about what they saw was going on in our country. Um, they registered it with Indivisible uh, at the national organization, the national level. Mm. And, uh, of course, <laughs> at that point, it just grew Incredibly. So um, I think they created on the third. I think I became a member on the seventh. And within two weeks, we had over 500 members. It was it was just awe inspiring. And so I was I was pretty active on in the group on Facebook. And at one point, um, uh, these folks reached out to me to become an administrator and leader on the group. and so I happily accepted that invitation, and I'm working really hard just to provide the leadership that we need to be as effective as we can be as a group together. Um, I was looking at the mission statement on the Facebook page for your group, and it says, and I'll just quote very quickly, uh, dedicated to working effectively together to stop the Trump agenda and bring compassion and reason to our government. We are basing our group on employing the techniques presented by the Indivisible Guide. This group is intended to be a resource for those who would like to be informed of current issues and events and how to become active in making your voice heard. And then, and I love this, under group type, it just says, get things done. So that's fantastic. Right. Because, I mean, that's that's really sort of what this is all about. We can have, you know, angry and outraged chats on social media as much as we want, but that doesn't actually really do anything. So um, let's talk about some of the things that your group does. Uh, because you overlap into the ninth district, which is represented by uh, Congressman Adam Smith, he's a Democrat. The first uh, district, uh, represented by Susan Del Bene, she is also a Democrat. And then you overlap into my home district, the eighth, which is represented by Dave Reichert, a Republican. A lot of indivisible groups are targeting their representatives. Uh, are you are you making a concerted effort to kind of reach out to your representatives? We will. Uh, To date, our focus has been on our senators because we've been focused on the um, cabinet nomination process. 
yeah. and trying to influence those decisions and appointments to the extent that we can. Uh, you know, it's important to recognize that there's been no legislation coming come out of this administration at this point. They have exclusively tried to exercise their power through executive order, and um, and so. That's been our focus to date is is trying to address those nominations uh, and, and and really focusing on the executive branch uh, as legislation starts to emerge. Uh, you can bet that we're going to be very engaged with all of our representatives. Um, so Adam Smith and Susan Del Benny, as you said, are Democrats, and they they walk the talk. Quite frankly, I, I I am in the ninth district, and I am very pleased with the performance of my representative. And uh, not to say that I won't hold him to account should I see him weakening on what I consider to be important issues. Sure. Uh, thing people, it, uh, uh, we're blessed that uh, we live in a district that uh, who's represented by a very reasonable and informed person. Um, that's not to say that any individual can't improve their performance. I'm certainly going to encourage uh, Representative Smith to do that. Uh, with regard to Dave Reichert, you know, Dave Reichert won his last election, last couple elections, with a pretty safe margin. Mm-hmm. However, the 8th District only went for Trump by one point. Make no mistake, the 8th District is a swing district, and I'm sure that he is aware of that. And so, therefore, he will be very susceptible to pressure put on him by constituents and residents of this district. I I agree. And, uh, you know, I think as a Republican, he uh, tends to be more bipartisan than many of his uh, colleagues in, in, in his caucus. He's not a Tea Partier, right. And, and that's because, you know, I think that's a direct reflection of the makeup of his district. He knows that um, uh, he can't be the ideological stalwart that some of his uh, more extreme colleagues are because he simply wouldn't survive. Right. Uh, and we can and we can use that to our benefit. We can leverage that to uh, persuade uh, Representative Riker to to mount a respectful and meaningful opposition when uh, his president goes off the reservation. Yeah. As he's demonstrated a particular knack for doing almost on a daily basis. <laughs> well, that's the subject of an entire show right there, David. Uh, and, and actually, I, I could put in a plug for my other podcast at this point. There's another podcast that I do called Think Outside the Beltway, which you can find at thinkoutsidethebeltway.com, where we talk all about, uh, and boy, it's become a full-time job talking uh, about uh, Trump and his daily trips off the reservation. Um, let's circle back to the action that you are taking with our two Democratic senators, Maria Cantwell and Patty Murray. Uh, Patty Murray, in particular, I think, has been very, very effective, or at the very least, outspoken uh, in the nomination process. Uh, but even though it failed, she was one of the people who participated in the all-night filibuster uh, against Betsy DeVos. Um, what are the sorts of things that your group is doing when you say that you are working you know, on our, our senators? Does it consist in pretty much entirely of phone calls? Have you made personal visits? So we have made many phone calls. We have rallied outside the federal building in Seattle. And uh, let me make a plug for our sister group, Seattle Indivisible, where we have uh, participated in rallies with them. We've also gone up and met with uh, staff uh, of the two senators and um, 
happily, very warmly received and uh, strongly encouraged to continue what we're doing. Great. Uh, you know, there's an old story about uh, Lyndon Johnson wanting to do the right thing, but telling Martin Luther King, I want to do the right thing, but you've got to make me do the right thing. You've got to force me. And that gives me political clout. Mm. And I think that's a very important lesson that's as true today as it was then. We need to empower our senators to be the strong uh, leaders and and um, strong leaders that they can be and want to be. And we need them to be in order to resist the Trump agenda. Yeah. And in fact, uh, they have both said and their staffs have said that they are receiving just an unprecedented number of calls. So clearly uh, the strategy is working, right? Well, hopefully, yes, yes. I, I think it will work. Um, again, stopping um, cabinet appointments from going through is exceedingly difficult in the history of our republic. I think the number is that there are seven cabinet nominees that have been defeated. In hasn't the happened much. Hasn't so happened much. It's a yeah. very rare uh, occurrence. And you know what? We came really close with DeVos, didn't we? Yeah. It actually, I don't, I don't think, and I'm going to have to actually look this up, but I don't think a tie has ever been broken by the vice president before. So that's about as close I, I, as it gets. I believe that's true. That's right. So moving forward, what do you see as the future of your group? I think that our group is going to evolve over time exactly how is hard to anticipate right now. We're going to be developing um, mid and long term strategies over the next uh, few weeks, as a matter of fact. And so uh, really, the sky's the limit um, to be a force to be reckoned with in, in politics in this country over the next four years. Well, the East Side is a big, big place, uh, and it is full of uh, tech companies, and it's full of uh, money, and now it's full of some pretty fired up people. So uh, I, I think you're right, David. Wonderful. I appreciate the opportunity, Stefan. Thank you so much for being on the show. And we will end on this week's call to action, which is kind of a no-brainer. And it's one that I'm going to bet you, if you are a call to action type person, that you have already done. Call both of our senators as well as your congressperson and ask that they push for a full bipartisan investigation into Michael Flynn's Russian ties. You can mention in your call that Senator Roy Blunt, a Republican from Missouri, has said he believes the investigation needs to happen. He said in an interview, quote, the Senate Intelligence Committee that I serve on has been given the principal responsibility to look into this. And I think we should look into it exhaustively. So at the end of this process, nobody wonders whether there was a stone left unturned, end quote. Representative Seth Moulton, a Democrat from Massachusetts, went a step further in an interview on CNN and invoked the T-word, saying, quote, if members of the administration are essentially conspiring with Russia, either through the 2016 presidential campaign earlier or now in the administration itself, that is the very definition of treason. And hey, while you got your congressperson's office on the line, you might as well ask that your representative support New Jersey Congressman Bill Pascrell's call to invoke a 1924 law to demand President Donald Trump that's those words, demand his tax returns for possible conflicts of interest and constitutional violations. Representative Pascrell serves on the House Ways and Means Committee, along with another Washington representative whose name might ring a bell at this point, Dave Reichert. One of the last times that law was used, incidentally, was in 1974, when Congress looked at the tax returns of another name that might ring a bell, 
President Richard Nixon. We all know how that turned out. Well, as Mark Twain once said, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And that is this week's Call to Action. And that is also it for this week's Washington State Indivisible podcast. I thank you so much for listening. Again, I really want to hear from you with your feedback, your thoughts, suggestions, all of it. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show to talk about your group, your home district, et cetera, et cetera, the email address is WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Again, WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. And you can also leave a comment on SoundCloud. The Washington Indivisible The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to Dave Schwartz and Rich Smith. And thanks again to you for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.